when you put a face to these issues and you you humanize them and you put real people's stories behind them, it's a lot harder mm. to uh, create these um, xenophobic narratives and these dehumanizing stereotypes. Uh, when it's your neighbor, when it's your maybe a family member or a friend, it's a lot harder to think about these issues in these cold political terms, which is so often how we talk about immigration. It's always a political issue, a, a pawn in some bill or some debate. Uh, but these are, you know, millions and millions of people's lives in, this, in the balance. Hello, friends. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Before we get into this week's conversation, I want to let you know that I feel very hopeful this week incredibly hopeful. Why, you ask? Allow me to briefly explain. Last week, on Friday, I was invited to the United Nations as a delegate at the SDG Media Summit. SDG is Sustainable Development Goal, and there are 17 sustainable development goals presented to the world by the UN in 2015 that tens of thousands of organizations and tens of millions of people are organizing around and are using to make our world a much better place. A few of the speakers included Boaz Paldi, Chief Creative Officer at the UN, Aislinn Derbez, founder of La Magia del Caos, Carrie Banigan, Executive Director of the Fashion Impact Fund, Melissa Fleming, Undersecretary General for Global Communications at the UN, Paloma Escudero, director of the Division of Global Communications and Advocacy at UNICEF, and a couple dozen others. The talks that were given, the ideas that were presented, left me incredibly encouraged about where we're headed and about what we're doing to slow the effects of the climate crisis on our planet and so much more. If you'd like to watch some or all of the four-hour summit, and I encourage you to watch some or all of the four-hour summit, please check out the link in the show notes or just Google SDG Media Summit and you'll find the video on the UN's media website. A special thanks to my friend, Stephen Keppel, who is also a past guest on the podcast and the Public Foundation for inviting me to be a delegate and to participate. Now, for my guest this week, Shauna Sicklco is a video producer working at the intersection of media production, research, and advocacy. Her credits, some of them, include shows such as Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, PBS's Mind of a Chef, Nickelodeon's Take Me to Your Mother, HGTV's House Hunters, and MTV's Emmy-nominated White People. Her current role is Director of Digital Storytelling at Define American, an incredible nonprofit whose mission is to advocate for immigrant representation in the media. During this conversation, we talk, among other things, about an original research report she worked on for three years called Immigration Will Destroy Us and Other Talking Points. This report examines the role of anti-immigration narratives on YouTube in shaping American views of migrants and refugees. Important, incredibly important work. Make sure to check out the show notes, the link in the show notes, to read this incredible report. 
We also discuss the monumental importance of effective storytelling in our current political and societal realities. Storytelling is always important, always has been. But in my opinion, because of the internet and social media and access to anything that we ever want at any time, it's more important than ever to be an effective storyteller. And as a storyteller myself, I'm always trying to learn how to be clearer and how to do better. And I most definitely learned a lot from Shauna during our conversation. Before we jump in, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com anytime and for any reason to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, tell me how much you love or hate me, anything really, I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with my new friend and brilliant storyteller, Shauna Sickleco. Let's go. Shauna Sickleco, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Hi, Nick. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be sitting with you in person, right? These are becoming a little more regular as we slowly climb out of this pandemic. I really enjoy being in person with people, and I still do tons of virtual ones, but they're just not the same. I did one last week. The internet wasn't great, and it kept skipping, and the video was terrible. Couldn't use it for, like, online clips. I was just like, this is so ridiculous. So doing it in person is always a joy. Thank you so much for being here and for, I won't give people the boring backstory, but thank you for doing it on such last minute moment notice. Um, yeah, I'm so glad. And we have so much to dive into. Let's begin. Um, I usually want to begin with some backstory. You have just a wonderful career so far, and you're currently doing something that is, I think, very meaningful, and we'll learn more about it today. But before we get into your professional work, where did you come from? How did you get here? Who are some of the people, places, and things that shaped you into who you are today? Yeah, wow, big question. Big question. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Take um, as long as you need. Sure, yeah. Uh, so my name is Shauna Sigelko. I am um, from the Hudson Valley, uh, raised Irish Catholic uh, in Nyack, New York. Love that town. If you haven't been, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, my, my parents, uh, my dad uh, is a TV producer, and so growing up, I was always in a family that uh, really paid attention to media and really thought about storytelling. My mom uh, is a librarian, but she's also a writer. And um, I always grew up really interested in stories. I was a theater kid. Um, and in college, I got really into playwriting. And I thought maybe the direction I wanted to go after school would be into theater. Um, but when I graduated, I found that uh, I actually was more drawn towards uh, filmmaking and television. So I got uh, involved in non-scripted television. My first gig was as a production assistant for Anthony Bourdain on uh, Parts Unknown. And um, I, I did a lot of food and travel TV here in New York City. Uh, it was kind of a tough time to uh, start out a career. It was in the middle of the recession. So I would be a production assistant in the daytime, and then at night, I'd moonlight in editing. Um, so I got no sleep for a couple of years, but I, I really feel like it was a production boot camp. Um, and I, I did that for a few years. I worked my way up the, the TV um, industry uh, here in New York in the non-scripted space, and I was a, 
a senior associate producer on a project for MTV mm. in 2014 called White People. Uh, and I really think that that project was a, a big turning point for me. Um, I've heard about white people. The, the we've all heard about <laughs> you heard white about people. white people. Oh my yes. god! Let's talk about white people. It's a funny but, title. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. A, I mean, it's great because automatically you're thinking all sorts of things and you're wondering what's the angle here. Talk a little bit about that because I, I, um, yeah. What's what's it about? Because again, I'm not super familiar with it, but I've heard enough about it to know that I probably should have seen it. Uh, well, I'll send you a link after this Perfect. interview. Um, so the project to work on it was an interesting evolution. So what we started with was a study that looked at views of young white people around the country about race. And uh, we had different statistics uh, that looked at, um, yeah, like, like how high school and college age white kids were thinking about race. Uh, one really critical statistic was about half of young white Americans viewed, uh, felt that they had been persecuted because of, they were white. Oh, wow. Um, this was back in 2014. So. I'm wondering what the context was for, that's what I, literally what I was thinking was MTV 2014, like what was happening that made this thing a reality, right? Because they're spending money on it. They're making this thing. Am I missing something culturally that was happening or it just was a good piece to make? Oh, like what, um, yeah, what forces came yeah. to, together? Well, I think that a lot of that credit can go to uh, my my current boss, Jose Antonio Vargas. He um, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and he's also an undocumented American. And in 2011, he had come out about his status as an undocumented immigrant. Um, he had done it because he was a well-known journalist. He had done it in a really untraditional way. He did it on the cover of uh, Time magazine. Right. <laughs> so not the typical story. But um, so I, I think that probably that project came to fruition because uh, he had relationships at MTV, and he had a real interest in exploring white identity. Uh, obviously, at the time, we had no idea what was uh, to come with with Trump and white nationalism in this country, where it sits today. Right. But at the time, uh, I was in my early twenties, and I was, uh, you know, this was a big break for me to work on this project. I was a huge fan of Jose's already. Um, so I uh, I was in charge of casting. So well, it was, it was one of my my roles was casting, and I interviewed hundreds of uh, not just white people, but predominantly white identifying people about their viewpoints on race. And uh, it was it was a really eye opening experience for me personally. Uh, I think I learned a lot about my own privilege and my own kind of position. Um, and the project itself, uh, what it turned into was a series of segments kind of looking at these, um, these statistics, uh, how they actually were playing out in real people's lives. So um, I, I don't remember the, the stats off the top of my head, uh, but for example, the, the um, you know, half of young white people felt that they had been persecuted because of their skin color. We found that that really centered around the idea of affirmative action mm -hmm. and scholarships. Uh, and we found this young woman in Arizona who uh, wasn't able to go to the college she wanted to because she couldn't get um, a scholarship. And she felt that her friends of color were given more opportunities than she was. Uh, so we explored that topic through um, her perspective, but also through her friends' perspectives. Um, we also traveled to Pine Ridge Reservation and spent some time with some young white teachers who were teaching um, Native students, hmm. uh, and that uh, we explored privilege through that angle. Uh, so we really traveled around the country 
and looked at how whiteness, um, kind of the, the identity of whiteness in a changing America. And uh, Jose was the host of, of that project, and we really clicked as soon as we met. I've been working with him ever since. Um, we've been working together Quite now a few eight years. years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the next project we worked on together was at the LA Times. Uh, we worked on a project called Emerging Us, which was looking at emerging American identities. So every week we produced a different documentary about intersectional American identity. Um, and these were, at the time, these were just really cool projects, and I felt really lucky to have those opportunities, and I still do. Um, but in retrospect, it was just a really interesting time to be traveling the country and talking about American identity in 2014. Uh, we, I did that from 2014 through uh, really 2017, and obviously the 2016 election cycle. Um, Those peaceful <laughs> kind of, days. Yeah, yeah. It kind of disrupted all of our lives, mm. right? And uh, I think that that, I, at the time, I felt like I was just making documentaries because it was I was fascinated by the subject matter, and it was artistic and um, fulfilling in that way. But um, I think for a lot of people, the 2016 election cycle was a turning point for a moral imperative. And just, you know, what are kind of, I kind of got to a point where I was just like, what do I want to do with my life? And I I decided I wanted to dedicate it to trying to fight the evil that I was seeing everywhere, that Mm. I feel like we're all still seeing everywhere. Um, And that sounds really grandiose, but. Uh, I don't know. I, no, I, I had the opportunity it. to yeah. have a job to do that. So yeah, um, no, it's a real special. Yeah. It's a privilege. Yeah, to be able to. I mean, I I feel like as as you're talking and I'm getting to know you more and the work that you've done. I feel like I was just thinking, oh, I've got my homework set up, kind of cut out for me to go back and look at this stuff you've done because every project you mentioned so far just sounds amazing. I'm wondering with the white people project, was one of the goal? Was it just to? get them talking and to share and to kind of get these data points from them and to hear their stories? Or did, did, did people change their minds? Like through the project, did you see people maybe beginning? And again, I'm asking a dumb question because I haven't seen the project yet, but did you get people starting with, Hey, I feel like my friends of color are getting more opportunities. And then by the end of the project, they were like, Oh, that was, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. given all the context? Did their minds change? Or, or was that not the goal of the project? I, I don't think that was the goal, and especially because it's not guaranteed. You know, sure. there's no guarantee yeah. people are going to change nope. their mind on camera. Um, I think that there was some um, opening of minds, at least. Uh, Katie, our, our subject in Arizona, I don't know what she'd say today or even, you know. Yeah, because a few things have happened since then that might have pulled her back into that thinking or set her free, depending on how which way she went with 2016 and 2020 and everything that's happened. Totally. Yeah. And she was, um, I think she actually was a really open-minded person and she was open to hearing, um, from her friends and from, uh, from other perspectives. Uh, so I, I think her mind might've been changed, but you'd have to ask her now. Uh, there was another family that we, um, that we profiled in, the uh, Northwest where the the stepfather was really uh, set in his ways. And the son was uh, teaching a white privilege class. He was actually doing a workshop to try to get people in his uh, community at his community college to open their minds. And his stepfather sat in on that. And I know that was a very Mm. difficult uh, familial conflict um, that we were, you know, privileged enough to be present for in film. And uh, we were invited in to see 
Uh, I don't know, you know, how that sure. landed. Uh, I am hopeful that the the project itself opened some minds for the people watching. Uh, again, it was 20, we shot in 2014. It was released in, I think we, it was released the same week that Trump announced he was running for president. So yeah, yeah, 2015. Yeah. When was that? Late 2000, no, May 2015? I say like, it was in the spring of 2015. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember those events happened, like I want to say the same week. Um, and I feel like that's really been the story of my career is that project into the Trump campaign uh, and then ending up at Define American, where I am now, which is uh, uh, just a little about Define American. We're a nonprofit organization with the mission to advocate for immigrant representation in media. Uh, so obviously during that 2016 campaign, um, the vitriol, the racism, the attacks on immigrant communities, uh, same people who I'm I'm working with every day and filming, um, that really gave a focus to, to my work. And we'll get to, we're going to spend a good chunk of our time on Define American. Sure. Before we get there, though, this is n- not really related to our podcast, but you mentioned that you worked uh, on Parts Unknown. Yeah. As a? I was a production assistant. Production and, assistant. Um, yeah, PA. How was that? Like, what was that experience like as I'm one of the millions of Americans that was a huge fan all things considered of Anthony Bourdain, you know, knowing, knowing now, even in, in, in the, uh, you know, have, having watched Roadrunner and other films, other films and things that have come out, just, you know, how messed up he was and how the problems that he was going through and the things that he was going through while giving us just a hell of a, a, a career, you know, that we, that we could watch on TV. Like, how was that experience? How long were you there? And yeah, what was that experience like, for, you know, again, because I watched, I've watched, in fact, I was watching it the other night again. I still go back and watch random episodes of Parts Unknown. Um, I've traveled the world a lot. I don't imagine that I'm, you know, the level of storyteller that he was. I mean, he'd spent so many years developing that and I'll get somewhat there at some point. But yeah, I I don't see myself in him, but like also I have that. I had that spirit of adventure and wanting to go out and see things and and not needing fancy things, could go out and eat and drink and sleep anywhere. Um, we shared that. And so I've always enjoyed watching him. But yeah, how was that experience for you? Yeah, I still watch those old episodes too. And I actually have been watching a lot of older TV recently just for comfort food, I guess. Sure, yeah. um, I didn't go, I wasn't on set for uh, that show. Uh, I worked for a production company called Zero Point Zero. Yep. They, they do a lot mm-hmm. of um, great food and travel programming. So um, I actually was more involved in some of their other projects, but I always mention uh, Parts Unknown because I, I think that's really their- um, Yeah, bread you know, and butter. Yeah. It is a banner project for yeah. them. It's a really wonderful production company. Uh, I think really fondly on my time there. I think I was there about a year and a half uh, and I made like lifelong friends. Uh, it really felt like a family. I, I don't know if I've ever experienced that type of community in a workplace mm-hmm. before um, or since. Uh, and um, it was also just like a really fertile, creative environment. Uh, so there was, it was it was an exciting place to work. I was also uh, it was my first gig in in television. So I was. Uh, really uh, motivated. I was always trying to be there first and um, working really hard. 
uh, my experience there, I, I really feel like it was colored by where I was in my life. I was like 22 and just really hungry. And um, I couldn't believe my my luck at, yeah. at working at such an incredible company. Um, a friend of mine who uh, was really close to Tony, to Anthony Bourdain, uh, Tom Vitale, just wrote a book about his experiences as an executive producer on that show. And I, it's a great book. I read it. Um, and I feel like he really captures what, uh, what that experience was like. Um, I don't remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but everyone should read it. We'll Google it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Everybody go Google. You said Tom Vitale. Tom Vitale. Yeah. He's a really talented writer. And I think he captured the experience of working on that show. Um, the best I, I've heard anyone in interviews talk about it. Cool. I love that. I'll, I'll off, off mic and it's good. So for those of you thinking that I'm not saying, cause it's, it's bad. No, it's good. But I'll tell you about my experience with 0.0, 0 um, a couple years ago was we were talking about doing a show together and I'll tell you about it later. Ooh. But um, yeah, I, I love 0. 0.0. be able to look up the name of his yeah, book. Go for I it. just feel like it yeah. would be weird to not say it. Nope. Tot- and, and honestly, we're telling people to Google it. And I might remember later to put it in the show notes or in the intro and the outro, but realistically, I'll forget. So we might as well look <laughs> for it now. I also just feel like it, I sound weird recommending a book that the name I can't remember. Um, <laughs> we are we are hardworking people and our brains are full <laughs> of stuff. So I also, I have to say, nobody's ever asked me about my ZPZ time um, before. So I, I wasn't thinking too much about no, talking about it today. I, I just, man, I, I was thinking this morning because I have, I have one friend who is releasing, she's in her late thirties, married, three kids, releasing a memoir about the, just wild things that have happened in her life. And then I had another friend this morning, early thirties, who's working on a memoir slash uh, novel and probably five or six years, no, maybe 10 years ago, I would have scoffed at that. Like you're too young to be writing a memoir. But now, like, I think everybody should be writing about their experiences in their lives. Like, I'm just so endlessly fascinated with how we got here right now. We're sitting in Manhattan, sitting in a conference room, recording this podcast. Like, how the hell did we get here? Like, a million things had to happen in our lives for this to happen. And that's, I mean, as a fellow storyteller, like, endlessly, I just want to hear everybody's story. Like I could, I would just leave an open mic and just invite people in and sit here for three hours because you do that. your time at 0. 0.0 is like so important to me because what happened there, if you didn't go to 0. 0.0 for a year and a half, you wouldn't be here probably. It would look totally different. Your job, like you were guided in certain ways. So it's, yeah, every part of it is fascinating to me. Did you find the title? I, I did. Um, so uh, the book that Tom wrote, it's called In the Weeds, Around the World and Behind the Scenes with Anthony Bourdain. Uh, and I, I think it is the most accurate portrayal of what it was like to work on that show. Uh, and also Tom's just a great writer. So I definitely recommend it's out. it. It's out. Okay. It's out on hardcover and Amazon and all the places. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, people can go look that up. Okay. We have, let's spend the next larger chunk of our hour together talking about Define American. You already talked a little bit about 2011. Jose came out as an undocumented in a very... Mm-hmm in a very big, loud fashion, right? That's kind of anti, that's the opposite of what most people would think in terms of you're coming out as undocumented, like, but I see that happening more and more. I see that in the, especially millennials doing that where they're 
it's not a secret anymore. It's not something that they know. They're actually proudly talking about the fact that they're working hard and they're contributing and they're doing this and that and they're undocumented. And it's not for lack of trying. They want it. They want to become a citizen. They want to do this. They want to do that. And here's where they are. This is their reality. So yeah, did it, did it in a very, very big way. Uh, Define American believes in the power of media to humanize the immigrant narrative one story at a time. Real quickly, before we get into Define American, this, what you all are doing is very personal to me. My dad came to the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant from Guatemala as a kid, ran away from home during the beginning of a civil war in Guatemala, came to live with some distant uncle of his mom's and uh, my now deceased grandmother. And uh, yeah, and then my grandfather came in to look for him and he liked it so much that they stayed and they built a life here. And I have, he married uh, my Italian mother in Rochester, New York. That's where they met uh, five or six hours from here. And um, so I am a, I am a, a, a beneficiary of people struggling to come here, not knowing what they were going to be met with. I am also the, I have been the recipient of all kinds of shit from people that don't like me, people that don't like immigrants, people that think certain things and ways about us. Um, and so, and, and when I was nine, we moved to Guatemala for 10 years. So I not only got the benefit of, you know, being the son of an undocumented immigrant who is now documented, but then I moved there for 10 years to live and got to grow up in a different country, which gave me this insatiable thirst to travel and explore and spend as little time in the U.S. as possible because I like it okay here, but I feel way more comfortable when I land somewhere else that is not the United States. And so I then spent, you know, six years traveling to 30 countries. And um, anyway, all that to say what this organization is built on is very personal to me because I'm a product of the good, the bad, and the ugly of being an immigrant here in this country. And I'm so, the more that I'm learning about it, uh, you know, I didn't word for word read through this report that we're going to talk through in the other work, but I've read through most of it and I've read every word on the website and your website. And I'm just so grateful for the work that you all are doing because the narrative, the stories need to be told and we need to change we need to somehow, some way, change the minds of millions of Americans that they're not bad people. Some of them are bad people. They've got this small little group that they're bad people that don't want to learn. They don't want to know better. They like remaining in their willful ignorance. Not, not even bad people. They're just not, not good people. Um, but then you have millions of others that are good people. They would give you the shirt off their back. They'd invite you in for a meal. They would give you money if you needed it. They're good people. And yet they have these wild ideas about undocumented and documented immigrants. They just, this whole conversation around immigration, that's the one where they just take a huge leap to the right and they say things and they think things and they do things that are just absolutely unreasonable. And a lot of that didn't start in 2015 and 2016, right? Because you were you were dealing with it before. A lot of people think I I think Donald Trump Trump is one of the worst. He is a very he's one of my least favorite people on the entire planet, for very obvious reasons. 
But he didn't do this to people. He didn't radicalize people. He gave them permission to be who they already were. He gave them permission to say things they were already thinking or talking with their friends about around the, around the bonfire, around a meal. Like he just gave them permission to like say things out loud that they were already thinking and believing. So it didn't start in 2016, but boy, have the last six years been really tough. People have been radicalized. And those of us that I think are thinking, not think, I believe are thinking correctly about many of these important issues, we have been a different kind of radicalized because it's it's hard not to dislike uh, or even go beyond that, like hate certain people for the things they say and do and the, the ways they live. Um, all that to say, as someone that is a storyteller trying to get better, this is important work. And I'm excited to talk about this organization with you and what you all are doing in this report and how those listening can participate in this. So I'll shut up now <laughs> and tell me about Define American. Again, I know you've already alluded to a few things, but like, what is it? What are the, what are the foundations of Define American? What are the goals of Define American? And then we'll, we'll get through this report here. Yeah, well... Thank you for sharing your background and your story. And I really feel like that is actually the, the foundation of Define American. What we really believe at our organization is that stories are our power and they can change the world. Uh, when Jose came out about his status, um, I know he was really inspired by uh, the LGBTQIA movement and the work of Harvey Milk and the calls to come out about uh, one's sexuality because when you put a face to these issues and you you humanize them and you put real people's stories behind them, it's a lot harder mm. to uh, create these um, xenophobic narratives and these dehumanizing stereotypes. Uh, when it's your neighbor, when it's your maybe a family member or a friend, um, it's a lot harder to think about these issues in these cold political terms, which is so often how we talk about immigration. It's always a political issue, a, a pawn in some uh, bill or some debate. Uh, but these are, you know, millions and millions of people's lives in, this, in the balance when we're having these conversations. And uh, it's really hard to argue with someone's personal story and truth, right? That is just, you know, your story, that is just who you are. That's your identity. That's your family. And um, we need to think about how to uh, that policy should reflect that humanity, not mm. ignore it. Um, and these conversations so often ignore the humanity of the communities that uh, are the focus of, of the discussion. Um, so that really is uh, kind of the, the ethos of Define American. We believe that if we can tell these uh, personal, real stories of the immigrant experience and, and use media as a tool to do that. We work with uh, entertainment partners in Hollywood. We have a department that goes into writer's rooms and um, advises on scripts and with showrunners so that uh, immigrant stories in film and television are more accurate and humanizing. We have a, a journalism department that works with editors and reporters so that uh, they have better tools for reporting on immigration. Um, we have an artist fellowship program that's fantastic. It, it's all about diversifying the pipeline and giving um, immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, opportunities uh, for artist grants, uh, for more emerging artists. Um, my work at Define American, uh, I kind of told you about my background. I came at this work really as a filmmaker. So 
my role on the team was just producing documentaries. Uh, so we did dozens of short films, mostly for digital, around immigrant experiences, uh, trying to highlight kind of underrepresented stories. And a couple years ago, we started noticing that we just weren't reaching the right people online. Mm. So uh, we had some really great distribution partners. We worked with Teen Vogue and Now This and um, Huffington Post. And um, I'm just bragging right now about our communications no, team. Are, yeah, but those um, are great partners. Great partners, right? Really great brands, big reach. Um, but while we're, we're producing these stories, we're also simultaneously seeing uh, what the right is saying about uh, immigrant communities. And it became pretty clear that we just were ships passing in the night. We just weren't having, we weren't addressing the narratives that were being put out on the other side. And we were kind of preaching to the choir. We were having uh, a conversation about immigration that almost felt like it was in a different language than what was being shown on Fox News. Um, and that really was the moment where we realized we needed a better understanding of immigration landscapes, particularly on digital. Uh, because a lot of research has come out about the power of digital and shaping um, opinions around all sorts of issues. And we realized we didn't actually understand how digital narratives were shaping American opinions on immigration. Um, so we decided to do this study. Uh, we started in 2018, was the beginning of the work. Um, and we really wanted to look at YouTube in particular. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. YouTube isn't the only important platform out there shaping opinion, but it is relatively understudied compared to Twitter or Facebook. Uh, also, there was a great study that came out of Data and Society that year from researcher Becca Lewis that looked at what she called uh, the alternative influencer network, which is essentially the alternative media that lives on YouTube. Sure. These yeah. are, you know, the far right content mm -hmm. creators that are creating their own media ecosystem. On they don't YouTube. need permission from anybody. They can just make, put out whatever they want. Exactly. And, and the narratives that they're putting out uh, are moving into the mainstream. Uh, so we knew basically there was smoke. We wanted to see if there was fire. We, we thought that YouTube would be a, a good place for us to start with our research. Uh, so the first phase of our research uh, was around the 2020 uh, election, and we looked at swing states. We did a poll with this group called Change Research, where we basically we were trying to figure out, is YouTube the right platform for us to study? How important is YouTube in shaping hearts and minds around immigration? And uh, long story short is we found it was really important. <laughs> um, we... Uh, I actually know some of these stats off the top of my head. Um, so we found that 63% of those polled, and these were regular YouTube viewers. Um, that means they watched YouTube at least once a week, uh, talked with their friends or family about immigration after watching content on YouTube. 28% uh, contacted a political representative, and 21% changed their vote uh, for a representative. So Wild. Wild. Really um, impactful numbers yeah. there. Uh, and I always like to caveat that 21%, we're not talking about, you know, changing Republican to Democrat or a, a presidential election necessarily. This is any elected official. But it's still incredibly powerful uh, translation of content into action. Uh, so we realized that YouTube was a, a really important space for this conversation. Um, and just to kind of highlight that further, that 63% talked with friends or family number was really important to us. Um, not only is it very high, right? <laughs> that 63% is really high. Uh, but a, a similar study came out from the Norman Lear Center 
in 2018 that uh, looked at traditional uh, television and how it translated into real world action. And the analogous number for that was 59%. Mm. So uh, what our study suggests is that YouTube might have an even higher uh, impact on audiences to cause them to do real world action based on content they've seen. Um, So to our first question, yes, YouTube is a really important space for, for shaping not just opinion, but also action on immigration in this country. Uh, Next, we wanted to understand who is producing anti-immigrant content on the platform. Uh, What are the channels? Who are the content creators? And what are they saying? Uh, So we partnered with a professor at the University of North Carolina, Dr. Francesca Tripodi, and uh, we looked at the top performing anti-immigration content of the last 15 years. So uh, that was all the available data, but essentially the the lifetime of YouTube. What are the videos that have the highest view count in the history of YouTube that are anti-immigration? And uh, from those videos, we were able to develop a network uh, that we've called the Great Replacement Network. And these are the channels that have published the most viral anti-immigration videos of all time on the YouTube platform. there were a ton of observations from that that data. Uh, I would say uh, one of the biggest observations we had was that most of the videos were actually coming from two sources. Um, there's the far right explainer video YouTube channel PragerU, mm-hmm. uh, which figured they would be in there. Oh yeah, they're in the mix. Um, and then there was wait, let uh, me guess, PragerU, the Blaze. The Blaze is. Uh, I think the Blaze is in our network, but they weren't Not one the of top. our top. Yeah. Okay. I'd Keep actually going. be surprised if you, this is kind of in the weeds immigration stuff. Okay. Uh, so the, the other top content creator uh, was the Tantan Network. Mm-mm, I don't know. Not familiar with them. No. And you, they're the top up yeah. there with PragerU. Well, the Tantan Network, it's, um, to be to be clear, the Tantan Network is actually a consortium of different think tanks. So it, it wasn't one channel, Got but it. they're part of a network. Sure. Um, and they were established by John Tantan who has since passed away, but is a noted and established eugenicist. Um, He began forming anti-immigration groups, I think, in the late 70s. Um, And they've uh, grown into dozens of really well-funded organizations that uh, have really official-sounding names, like Center for Immigration Studies, uh, or CIS, um, Numbers USA, uh, FAIR, Federation for American Immigration Reform. Um, you know, they sound really official. Yeah, it sounds legit. Yeah. Um, but uh, many of these organizations are uh, Southern Poverty Law designated hate groups. Um, and uh, we saw in the content that they uh, have really made the transition to digital very successfully. Um, you know, they've been doing this anti immigration media work. For decades, and they're extremely well funded. Um, I think the last number I saw was like twenty million dollars in, in that range. Um, and we're talking about you know dozens of groups. Um, this isn't just one organization. Right. Uh, they're often cited by mainstream news sources as legitimate uh, you know sources for immigration. They'll they'll go on uh, legitimate news channels like a CNN or MSNBC and, and talk about immigration as experts. Uh, Many of them served in the um, Trump administration. Uh, These are really powerful people and organizations that 
for decades have been waging a media war on immigrant communities. So when we did our study and we looked at YouTube, we weren't surprised at all to, to find their content um, in our network, very successful posts that had millions of views. Um, one of the videos, I don't want to say its name because I don't want people Googling right. it, but it's a video um, about, uh, you know, that's really meant to scare the audience into thinking that mass migration to the United States is going to destroy the country and we have limited resources and we can't solve the world's problems. So um, the, the speaker, Roy Beck, does a demonstration with gumballs and there are, um, you know, thousands of gumballs on this stage and one little glass and each gumball is a million immigrants of color, uh, explicitly uh, people of color. And how are we as this little glass, the glass is supposed to be the United States, how are we supposed to solve the world's problems if, if we, you know, try to get all these thousands of gumballs into our little glass? Um, in some ways, it's the perfect visualization for the Great Replacement Theory. Yeah. And um, that actually, it, it brings me to the, the next finding. Uh, we found that the videos all uh, made an argument or contributed narratively to the overall framing of the Great Replacement Theory. Um, and for your viewers who, uh, viewers, your listeners who aren't as familiar with this uh, white supremacist nationalist theory, uh, it's a conspiracy theory that um, a cabal of powerful Jewish people are uh, orchestrating the immigration system to, uh, you know, encourage more people of color to immigrate to the country uh, for political gain and replace the white population. Um, it's also, uh, you know, packaged as white genocide. Mm -hmm. um, so this framework we found um, throughout this network, and uh, it's also not so, ex you know, it's not so hard to find these days. You have Tucker Carlson talking about it on Fox News. Yeah, they're not even trying to hide anymore or mince words. They're just saying it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, for us um, at Define American, you know, we're a narrative change organization. Mm -hmm. we're, we're focused on media narrative. So for us, one of the most important findings from this report is that we know what the other side's overall narrative is. It's the great replacement theory. That's how they're framing uh, immigration in this country. That's how they're scaring uh, people into feeling that being welcoming is, uh, is a luxury that we as Americans can not afford, that we're under attack, our culture's under attack, our families are at risk, our safety's at risk. Uh, and immigration and immigrant communities are to blame. In the the report we're talking about, just because we're going to talk about it for a few more minutes, but there's a lot in here. And it was, mm -hmm. what, three years of work um, released this year in April. And so I we, we have physical copies here. You can't have that. Sorry. <laughs> but immigration will destroy us and other talking points. And I'll link to this because it's on your website and on the Define American website. Um, what have you, so you, you shared some really important findings there, things that I'm going to continue to think about, because again, I'm always thinking about, I don't want, I want to invite reasonable, reasonable thinkers that might not agree with me on certain issues. Like the Tucker Carlson's will never be in conversation with me on this podcast about it. Because again, they're, I think they're, they're not in this to learn. They're not in this to change. They're in this to spread willful, willfully ignorant disinformation, but I'm trying to get other people 
that again might have differences, but I believe that they're good people and we could work on changing each other's minds or at least helping each other understand. So as, as we continue to develop, so I was, I was talking with a friend this morning and her name is Kate. She was visiting New York. She just left a couple hours ago. And, um, she was talking about how, and I've met her mom, lovely woman, but they are like all in on Donald Trump. They have the coffee table book and they have mugs and they got different things and they're all in. Even after, see, I've always said, I understand. I would never do it. You couldn't have paid me any amount of money to vote for him in 2016, but I understand why some people did. A lot of frustrating things happening. A lot of people that weren't being, they, their needs weren't being met. They weren't being listened to. Totally understand that. Again, even though I would never do that. 2020, totally different story. You saw four years of this guy just blatantly being hateful and committing crimes and doing all sorts of things uh, right in front of us, like no hiding it. And she was talking about how it's getting more and more difficult to talk to them about these things, but they really want to because they're, they're going to go live with them for like eight or eight or 10 months while they save up to buy money for a house. Well, they save up money to buy a house. So she and her now husband, they're going to go live there. And she's like, man, it's not like visiting for the holidays. Like we're going to be in the guest house, but like a lot of interactions. We're not going to be able to avoid the coffee table book or that Fox News is on all the time or whatever. And so help, help us as a storyteller. What we've got some great stats in here. I hope people read through this report and we'll get back to it here in a second, but very practically, what have you learned about storytelling in the last few years? Some findings, some learnings that will help us. So you and I tell stories for a living. Um, but a lot of people, they need to learn these things. It's not their living, but they have family and friends that they love and care about. And they need to learn how to tell these stories better. They need to learn how to communicate better. They need to learn that what this person is saying doesn't always reflect what's going on in here. They are, to a certain extent, just spouting, they're just regurgitating what they heard Tucker say and what they heard Sean Hannity say and what they heard all these other people say. And they don't, if you ask them to explain that, they wouldn't even know that, but you gotta get past that to get to the heart of the issue, the fear, the insecurity, the whatever. So yeah, as a storyteller, what have you learned? What could you share? Just some simple, tips or tricks or points or whatever as people, again, in there's so much talk about whether or not Donald Trump will be indicted and, or whether or not they'll be able to ban him from running again in 2024. There's millions of people that want him to run again. We could have a very tumultuous 2024 election season coming up. A lot more conversations going to be had me with my family, with my wife's family, just a lot of different opinions about a lot of different things. How do we do this better? How do we have these conversations in a way that we can actually move the needle instead of whether verbally or in our actions, just saying, fuck you back and forth. Like, you know, just, I don't like what you're thinking. You're, you're a piece of this. You're that, like, that just doesn't, it feels good. feels good to get on Twitter and just be like, fuck you. You're terrible. What the hell? Da, da, da. But that did nothing. That did nothing except maybe alienate them further. I'm not interested in that. 
I want to move the needle. I want to bring people over to what I believe is the right way of thinking, the right way of living, inclusive, open, accepting, bringing more people in instead of it just being a bunch of me's running around. So help us with the storytelling side of this. Do you have any tips? Do you have any tricks for a common, for for the listener, not common, you're not common, you're amazing, but like just an everyday person that is working a job at a gym or a consulting firm, or they're a lawyer, they're they're a physician's assistant or whatever. They're just doing normal everyday jobs, but they have to learn how to be a better storyteller so they can move the needle in these relationships. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the million-dollar million question, question of our time? And it's such an important one. Um, I also have to say, just because I do this for a living doesn't mean I really know the answer or that I'm, I'm good at having these conversations. I also struggle with how to speak to members of my family about these issues um, because the stakes can be really high. Very. It's your family uh, or, or, or someone close to you. And um, but the stakes are high and that that's just the time we're in. Um, I would say actually any tips I have actually come from the research we did. Uh, so we found in the videos, there was actually a really surprising commonality in the way that all of these anti-immigrant, not all of them, many of the anti-immigrant videos were packaged and um, presented. They, um, a lot of them looked educational. They looked like college lectures or explainer mm. videos. And I think when it comes to immigration, this is an issue that is really emotional, but I also think it's just really confusing. Mm. It's a lot of wonky so policy. True. There's yeah. a lot of, uh, I mean, we're talking about the story of this country. It's really complicated. Yeah. And you have all these different types of people who are motivated by different reasons to come here. Um so I think one of the strengths of these videos is that they feel uh, really, they feel informed. And we can talk more about how they're packaged to feel informed mm -hmm. um, and educational. And they're simple. And they take this really complicated issue and they break it into bite-sized pieces. So um, I, I think that reducing complication actually isn't uh, something to strive for or a good thing, uh, but it is clearly effective for the other side. Um, I'll also say that the, the research showed that the, the tactic that's used most commonly is fear-mongering. Mm -hmm. It's about making the audience scared. So I feel like a lot of times um, when I'm in more progressive spaces or talking with people who agree with me more on this issue uh, about the other side, there's a lot of assumption that these views are based in hate and that there's there's just like this, this hatred of the other. Uh, and while in, I'm sure in many cases that's true, I think what's appealing to these videos for a wider swath of people is um, fear. Mm. And I really don't think you can start to have a conversation about, um, you know, our, our national identity or our policies or, or really anything if people feel threatened. If, if they think that they're livelihood or their families or their country is under attack and threatened, there's kind of no way to get through that, I think. And I, I just think that's human nature. If you feel um, scared, I, that's your top priority. Yep. And I feel like a lot of what the, the Trump uh, campaign in 2016 and administration did was 
scare the shit out of people. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, I mean, that's what the 24 hour news cycle does yeah. too. It's, it's like you said earlier, it's not, I don't think Trump is the cause of any of the stuff. He's just a, a really unpleasant symptom and galvanizing symptom. Yeah. Um, so I think that coming from a place of, um, you know, I do think bringing facts uh, helps, but thinking about facts not as, you know, something that you do to fact check somebody and uh, this is just an intellectual argument, but using facts actually as an empathetic tool and saying, actually, you don't need to be afraid uh, uh, in sanctuary cities. They're statistically safer because undocumented folks feel they can go to uh, law enforcement with issues. Uh, going with, you know, calming statistics actually I think could be a good place to start these conversations that are always going to be really difficult, but I think are incredibly necessary for where we are as a country. If people are just getting, if people want to learn those statistics and learn how to have these conversations, where should they start as they, as they look at who Define American is and what Define American offers? Again, you've mentioned all the different ways that you all are working. There's research and entertainment partnerships, journalism partnerships, storytelling, storyteller advocacy, and so on. But for the everyday listener, what's what should their starting point be? Should it be to read this report and then go from there? Like, what would you recommend people begin with? And again, Define American is not the only group doing this, but I think you all do a hell of a job. I really do. The way that you frame these conversations, um, it's very inviting. Um, and yeah, I'm holding three years of research in my hand that everybody should, they get to, they get to consume it for free. It's like why free. would everybody not read every word on here, you know? <laughs> so you. yeah, where, where should they start uh, in regard to the work that you all are doing at Define American? Uh, well, thank you for those kind words about uh, Define American. I'm also a really big fan of my colleagues and the work we do in our mission. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, please visit our website, defineamerican.com. We have uh, not just this report, but we have other resources. Um, we actually, our, our um, target audience are content creators. So I uh, we created a toolkit around this report. Um, the report, I think, is interesting. I, I'm biased. I think it's interesting. But if you want practical tips uh, for how to actually use the findings, we developed a toolkit for content creators with tips and recommendations for how to bypass some of the um, narratives on the other side and promote a more pluralistic, welcoming vision of the United States uh, in the content. But I also think that a lot of those tactics can be used in conversation. Uh, we also had a, a campaign called Facts Matter with a, a fact sheet that is just some basic facts about uh, U.S. immigration. I, I think that there is just so much content about immigration, but actually not a lot of great educational resources for the public to get um, some basic information uh, around the immigration system and the immigrant experience um, migrating to this country. Uh, so we do have those many of those resources on our website. That's amazing. Are you a Game of Thrones fan? Love Game of Thrones, okay. yeah. So my wife just finished it. Um, I watched it through a while back and it took her a long time to get through it, partly because it was her brother who's no longer with us, his favorite show. And she, he tried to get us to watch it back when he was watching and we didn't. And so there's a lot of like weird feelings around it, but she finally finished it last evening and final episode, you know, they're wrapping everything up. So it's a little slower, but no less intense. 
And I love the scene. I love the scene where they're trying to pick who's the next, who's the king, who's the the king going to be, uh, the next ruler. And Tyrion is, he's advocating for Bran the Broken to be the next ruler. And his argument for, and I understand, I understand why the whole last season is problematic for for George R. R. Martin fans and why the last episode and how Bran the Broken responds to this. I get it all. I understand <laughs> it. But Tyrion's pitch for why Bran the Broken should be king, it's funny that we're talking about storytelling here. Because Tyrion says, what unites people? Armies? Gold? Flags? No, it's stories. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. No enemy can defeat it. And who has a better story than Bran the Broken, the boy who fell from a high tower and lived? He's our memory, the keeper of all of our stories, the wars, the weddings, births, massacres, famines, our triumphs, our defeats, our past. Who better to lead us into the future? And I love that speech. I love Tyrion throughout the whole thing. I just want to like hug Tyrion every chance I can get. But I love that speech because it's so true. Like when we look at the landscape, when we look at the, our, the landscape of our society, who do we think the most powerful people are? Well, if you're, if you're super fucking rich, like you're powerful, right? If, if you have money, you're powerful. If you're white and have money, you're even more powerful. If you're a politician, you're powerful. If you're a clergy, you're powerful. If you are, so we have all these, these ideas of who the most powerful people are, but really and this is, this is not just like Game of Thrones stuff. This is, I think it's a reality. And it's why I've dedicated what I hope to be the rest of my life to being a master storyteller. Because I do believe, and I'm terrible at it right now, at winning people over. But I do believe that if we tell better stories and then live out what those stories are talking about, like I believe that's how we can change the most minds and move uh people forward. In uh, Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark, she quotes, and I'm blanking on the author, so it's not her quote, but very paraphrased, the quote that she quotes in Hope in the Dark is like, if, like, imagine if your side wins. Imagine if what you're, you want the world to look like wins. Like, what would society look like? We'll start living that way now. That's the, like, the punchline is like, don't wait for that to happen live that way now. You want an equitable society. You want this, you want that. Like, don't wait for it to happen. Hopefully it happens. But if you wait for it to happen, it's kind of like the guy who makes a ton of money and says, I'll give it away later. Well, that's no good for all the people that need it now. Right. And so I'm saying all that to point out the importance of your work, the importance of my work, the importance of Define Americans work. I think that is, if we have any success and I say we, those of us that are more progressive thinkers and livers, uh, if we have any success in the upcoming midterms and in these next few years, politically, societally, culturally, it will be not because we had the sickest burn on our local politician, right? Or our national politicians. Like that, again, that feels good for a moment to like watch some senator take another senator down. Like, oh, it feels so good. Like, look, they just like gave it to him. But you did nothing. They didn't move the needle. I think it's going to be those of us that are telling better stories. Yeah, I, I 
would fully agree. Um, I do hate that scene <laughs> in Game of Thrones, but I I agree with Tyrion's sentiment and and with everything you just said. Um, I I think that stories give us hope, and we can if we can imagine a better world. It really is the necessary only path towards that world. Um, I, I feel you know I I listen to the news. And I just feel a lot of despair. Mm. And I feel like Every everyone day. I know. Every damn day. It's just so neg- It's just so awful out there. And um, I, it does feel like it's getting worse, right? But I, I, had, I heard something that gave me hope the other day. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah. That right. feels good. This is the only thing that is going to pull us out of this is imagining a better future. Um, and I, I really do think storytellers uh, have that power. Um, and in our media ecosystem, it's, it's the media where that can be distributed and seen. Um, I, I think that narrative is, is the way forward for sure. I also think, um, you know, not to be technical about it, no, no pun intended, but I, I think we can't underestimate how much tech is shaping our reality and uh, our problems in our world. And I, I do feel like tech accountability, until we have that, we're kind of screwed. I'm sorry. That's I, I sort of think that way. Completely and agree. I, I don't think it's just tech accountability. I think there are a lot of elements to um, kind of digital activism and algorithmic justice. Uh, I think narrative is actually kind of an under-examined element of uh, activism and organizing that can happen um, online. Uh, I, I actually think part of part of our findings with this report was uh, there's a cohesive narrative um, attacking immigrants on YouTube. We need a cohesive narrative on the other side. Um, They're telling a story. We need to tell a better one. Mm. Uh, But I I do feel like so much of of what we're seeing with, um, you know, people not paying attention to climate change, uh, all the mis and disinformation, all the erosion to our democracy, so many of those rivers lead to the ocean of the disruption of uh, new tech and big tech. Uh, so I, I do think that um, our stories are important and uh, kind of the landscape that we tell them in is as well. And and the digital landscape is uh, kind of the battleground for for the fu- our future, right? Yeah. So, yeah. They always say that. I don't. I, they always say that like the the kind of the the high high tension vitriolic like angry stories are the ones that sell, right? So we got to right. keep selling those. And that's true, but I refuse to believe that could be the only way. Like, I want the good stories to sell. You know, I have this dream. I don't even know if it could ever happen, but there should be a network, not dedicated to, like, fluffy, Mm -hmm. like, feel-good stories only. But there should be a news network that is dedicated to telling good stories. Not ignoring the bad shit, but just telling good stories. Like, that should be a track. Like... That should be, I want, you know, sometimes I get frustrated at some of like the late night shows, you know, they're not obviously trying to be serious. Right. But I'm like, you have the opportunity. You have some of like the, the, some of our most beloved celebrities and leaders on these shows to talk about their books and their things. And then you just get like silly with them. And it's like, no, like ask better questions. Like you I understand that you got to, you know, you, you guys have an algorithm figured out. You got to laugh every so often so to yeah. keep people engaged. And but come on, just get better, get better at telling stories. People will stay, they will stay 
if you ask better questions, I think Stephen Colbert does a great job of kind of the back and forth. He's so fucking smart. And like, you know, he does a great job of mixing the laughter with like the deep and the heady, but man, we just need to get way better at it. So I'm glad, anyway, all that to say, I'm glad that we're both doing this work. Last question as we wrap up here, who are your storyteller? You've been storytelling for a long time and you're getting better at it and you've made a career out of it. Who are some of your like hero storytellers? Like who do you not emulate necessarily, but look up to people that you have learned from that are storytellers? It could be written or oral or movies or TV or whatever. And I didn't warn you about this question. So if you can't come up with anything <laughs> or just be silent for a minute and then I'll cut out the silence, whatever. Um, I think you've probably caught on that I'm terrible at remembering names. Uh, so um, I I can think of artwork that's, that's mm. inspired me. Um, I, I really love visual art, actually. I really like... Um, Manet and um, I uh, also I am actually really inspired by the classics. Uh, I was a classics major in undergrad. Um, I I did a ton of theater and I read all of the um, ancient plays and those archetypes. Fantastic. Uh, and I I feel like whenever I'm feeling kind of a drain on my creativity, I I go back to the the Greek classics. Um, so. Uh, I feel like that's a very Eurocentric Western answer, but it, I don't know. No, it's, it's fair. Um, I, mean, I studied abroad in Greece too, and it was like kind of a spiritual experience for me. Um, other artists that really inspire me, uh, I think about um, like Great Gardens was a really big piece of content that changed my life. Uh, that verite style of documentary, mm -hmm. Paris is Burning, was mm -hmm. probably mm -hmm. when I decided to become a documentarian. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I think, I think I've always been really inspired by, uh, by theater and, and documentary filmmaking in particular. I saw a performance of um, Exit the King, which uh, was a play on Broadway, um, I don't know, many years ago at this point. I was, I think I was in middle school when I saw it. And uh, this is a spoiler alert for that play, but at the end of the play, it's a play about dying. Um, he's a king and he's uh, he's dying through the whole play. And at the end, he he has his kingdom in his hand and he lets it go mm. and, and he dies. And there was a moment in the theater that was just completely dead silent. And it was this experience where I felt like everyone in the theater was contemplating their own mortality. And it is one of the more spiritual moments of my life where I felt um, we're all in this together. We're all facing mortality together in this moment. And that I feel like is when art is really successful, you don't feel alone on this existential journey that we're all on um, that can be really isolating. So I think that I'm I'm really inspired by art that has a spiritual component. I was raised Catholic, so um, it, it was really taught to me at an early age. Um, and I really like uh, the ancient work as well. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. This was a fun conversation. I learned a lot. I hope that we have intrigued people enough to go read this report, to get involved in what you all are doing content creators, especially if you're listening. Um, 
Yeah, and I hope that we can spread the good news of Define American a little more because of our conversation. Thank you so much. Hope we can do it again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Damn givers and friends, thank you for showing up. Thank you for spending time with Shauna and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have so many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. And you can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love y'all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. Thank you.